Coming up on this Big Gay Fiction Fest episode, we go back in time as we present a panel on historical romances. Welcome to episode 383 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. Welcome back to the Big Gay Fiction Fest. Historical romance seems like it is everywhere these days. It's on TV with Bridgerton. There's historical drama like The Gilded Age. Downton Abbey is back in movie theaters. And while only The Gilded Age has given us queer characters on TV, there are plenty of great gay historical romances to pick from, and we've got three terrific authors with us to talk about writing about the past. Annabelle Green, Mary Farmer, and Kat Sebastian each have new books that we're going to talk about, plus we're going to discuss many aspects of the genre and why they write in it. Mary and Annabelle and Kat, thank you so much for joining us for the Big Gay Fiction Fest. It's great to have you here to talk about historicals. Thanks for oh, having me. Great to be here. Yeah. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So I want to start off and have you each introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the type of historicals that you write. And Annabelle, we'll kick it off with you. Oh, will you? Okay. <laughs> great. <laughs> Your first name starts with A. It seemed like a good place to start. Yeah. No, sadly, that does make total sense. So uh, uh, if, if you see me looking down, I've made worryingly extensive notes for this casual conversation. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm Annabelle. Uh, I live in southern Italy in a tiny flat with my boyfriend and a cat that really hates me. And this is my first ever panel, so I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, I've just finished my first historical series, The Society of Beasts, which is three gay romances set in and around a fictional club for gay gentlemen in Regency England. So the third one, The Servant and the Gentleman, will be coming out on the 17th of May. And then, who knows, the world, I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) And Kat... Sure. I am Kat Sebastian, and I write queer historical romance in a variety of settings, and it usually tends to be pretty soft. And I think that's, I guess that's like the only, at this point, I guess that's the only unifying factor that my books have. (laughs) I have to, I used to be able to say I write Regency or Regency historical romance, um, but now it's all over the place. But the unifying factors are that there's the characters are always queer and usually is pretty low angst. And I love how you've expanded on the historicalness of it. Cause it did, like you said, all used to be Regency, but now you're in the forties and the sixties. And I mean, historical these days, I guess is almost anything pre 2000, which makes me feel (laughs) super old. (laughs) (laughs) And Mary, tell us about you. I'm Mary Farmer. I write uh, mostly Victorian, but every once in a while somebody drags me into a Regency project MM romance. Um, I I just love writing deep love stories of just people falling in love. And but also from my background of history, because I have two degrees in history and all this information in my head, and I love to get that out into story form. So I try to based stuff on something interesting I read in a history book and then make a story out of it. I guess that's my unifying factor there. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of a unifying factor for my books so far because I, I really 
I, I am nothing compared to you guys in terms of output yet, she says. But like, I, I don't know, bonkers passion, I guess, would probably be a way of putting it. I like bonkers passion. Uh, what more could I want in a book other than bonkers passion where the two come together so well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I'll just go and change some social stuff. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm curious to know what kind of drew you into writing in the period, or in Kat's case, periods that you are writing in. Uh, I guess, Mary, we'll just come back to you for that. Well, like I say, I have a, all these degrees in history, and I read history books for fun. And um, I think the reason why the 1890s in particular really appeals to me, uh, my first fully MM series, The Brotherhood, was uh, Victorian London in the 1890s. And the current series that I'm doing, The Slippery Slope, is like a spinoff of that in New York City in the 1890s. And the reason the 1890s just really resonate with me is like they were at the time known as the naughty 90s. And it's just a lot more forward thinking and a lot more progressive and liberal than a lot of people nowadays assume that life was back then. But think about how much things were changing back then, the inventions, electricity and homes and running water and the, the media and the press was a huge, new, exciting, horrible thing. And it just feels a lot like what we're dealing with now. So I love the similarities of that time period and what we're doing now. And it's just educating people about the fact that it was actually way more liberal than you think it was, is so much fun. So. <laughs> Is that God, is that era when you have your degrees from, or are your degrees kind of more far-reaching through history? Um, I I sort of specialized in the entire 19th century, but the more I studied and the more I read, the more the the what in England they call the late Victorian period, and over in the states the Gilded Age, just started to appeal to me more and more. And post earning my degrees, I've actually bought and read more books about that particular time period. And up, up to World War One, because I kind that first decade of the 20th century kind of fits with the 19th century in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. That World War One changed so many things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's understatement several centuries. <laughs> Annabelle, what, what drew you to Regency? Well, I, <laughs> I wish I had a greater response to that. It was completely unearned confidence in my knowledge of the period. <laughs> like, I, I'm English and period dramas are baked into our pop culture, like, in such a huge way. You know, the Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. Like, I always loved that. I also have a degree in history, but it was early modern. And while I would absolutely love to, like, you know, write a romance about a sort of 17th century ballad seller or something similar, what I what I found in terms of like keystone romance texts when I was beginning to read romance was Regency, and I adored it. I absolutely loved it, and because my natural writing voice is historical rather than contemporary. I don't know, it must have been the books I read growing up. I thought, you know what? I, I could write a Regency. I, I actually get, and then I started writing and I thought, oh God, I know nothing. <laughs> I am completely unqualified. Like, I think I can write, but boy, I underestimated this massively. And so then I, you know, I did proper research and I also started 
thinking again about the things that you love in an uncomplicated way when you're a teenager, like Jane Austen, you think, well, that's a, it's a really staid, white, sort of only one class strata type of, you know, exploration. I, I would like to see what other people were doing in that period and how other people found love and happiness. And so that was what kind of drove me on to start writing in Regency. And I'm sorry, Kat, this may be embarrassing, but it was reading one of your books as well. Like, <laughs> it, you, well, you know, you, you only know you can do something if you know it exists. And so mm -hmm. I think it was, I think it was the Lawrence Brown affair. <laughs> I, I read it and I was like, oh my God, I, it, it exists. I could do this. This is amazing. For me, I would, I would, building off what Annabelle said, like it's, I had read so much Regency romance. Like I, my starting in like 2009 when my younger kids were born I was just like in a bad place and all I could do was read romance novels like that was it okay so I just like I went through I didn't even have an e-reader so I just like went through every single room like historical romance on my library shelf and they were all they were basically all Regency like I went through like all of the Julia Quinn's like all of everybody you know there was nothing left when I was done and um and then I had to buy an e-reader and read everything else and like Honestly, after three years of this, like that's about when it occurred to me. Like after like 300 romance novels, I was like, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Like these are all straight people. Like it's actually yeah. pretty weird for me, for like me as me to be like reading about all of these, all of these straight people. And then like once that idea got into my head, I was like, okay, like there's got to be. Like I'm not the first person to have thought of this, but this is. But like at the time, there absolutely were there absolutely were queer historical romances, but they it was like there were enough to keep you busy for two weeks, right? And then and so like and I'm still and at this point I'm still mad, right? I'm like, where are my gay books? And uh, <laughs> I, I so like the only solution clearly right the solution clearly is that I have to write one you know um and I had never written a book I had never written anything more complicated than like a legal brief or like and and or an email okay and so those, sorry those famously uncomplicated legal briefs Jesus Christ I mean they're not really they're not really sexy though okay <laughs> like they're not yes it depends on the case yeah, I guess. <laughs> they're not they're not fun to read and so I am um, I had no reason to believe that I could actually write something and I was like I just I just did it and it worked out and so I kept doing it and it was like it really was just wanting to see like one like these books that I enjoyed so much like the setting that I enjoyed so much like I wanted to see it filled up with people like me and uh, that was and that got me, that was like enough to propel me through 10 books. And then I was like, wait, there are other settings that are, are like absolutely <laughs> devoid of it. Like, you know, my mind is working like in a 10 year lag at this point, right? Like it occurs to me like in like 2000, 2020 that there aren't, that like, wait a minute, like we haven't done, Agatha, like there aren't, there aren't any like good, decent, happy queer people in Agatha Christie. I have to, you know, I have to get on that, you know? Um, but that's pretty much like, that's, that's how I got here. Is that not seeing queer people in Agatha Christie type mysteries and through the other things, kind of what led you into taking on other timeframes after doing so much in Regency? Yeah, I mean, that's totally it. Like that's, it's a part of it is I had read, I mean like, okay, like all the love and respect for people who can write 50 books in one period. But like my brain is 
like too squiggly to stick with one thing for two. It's a miracle I wrote 10 books in one period. It's a miracle I wrote 10 books at all. Okay. So after like, I really started to chafe at it. And then, and then I pitched a book that wasn't Regency and was basically told like, no, it's kind of got to be Regency. And then of course I'm like, now I'm in a place where I can't write a Regency novel, right? <laughs> you know, like I've been told I have to, and now I'm in a dark place. <laughs> and so I managed to talk my editor back to as far back as like 1750, you know, and now, and that's, that's sufficiently different from Regency and that is like, everything is a much, is much looser, you know? Um, so I got that far back and then I was like, I really like, you know what, like I'm, I'm personally annoyed by the lack of like happy queer texts of in the 20th century. And again, like, like, okay, like I'm, I guess I'm the person for the job, you know, and which is so embarrassing to admit because like, like, I don't, I, I can usually maintain that level of confidence for like a minute, you know, but like to be able to sustain it for, you know, a hundred thousand words is like embarrassing. But um, but this is the writer disease, isn't it? The kind of the belief that you are essentially unqualified for everything, apart from this one thing where you are yes. the best person on the planet. <laughs> you just have to sustain that for a book and then for another right. book. Can I, can I ask a, like an embarrassing question? Like, did did you self publish the ones from the sixties and the forties? Yeah, I did. I am. Um, this is like I I've only been indie. I've, I've gone with a, a publisher for this these last couple of books, but like I'm I'm an indie at heart because I have found that we have the ability to do more and explore more and look at all of these subjects that like traditional publishing doesn't like to take risks. I totally get that. You know, do what you yeah. know is going to work. But we we have so much more freedom when we can publish it ourselves. I that's kind of why I started publishing just period in the first place I tried going the traditional route and I was like Ning. and then I learned about indie publishing like that that gives me the freedom that I want to tell the stories that nobody else is telling yes and you're telling you're doing you have one set in like the like your is it your most recent book that's set in like the Bowery yes. in New York yeah oh that, yes. I love that I mean that is that's such a great setting well and the, and the thing is and okay I'm getting up on my soapbox now but I've done a lot of research about the gay club scene of the 1890s and then when I put up my first ad on Facebook I had somebody right away go and quote like the gay club scene in the 1890s really and I'm like it's a thing it's it it actually existed and it's fascinating the history and I'm and my author's notes are as fun to write as the books themselves because I'm just basically this is like following what actually happened in New York it's but again slide, right are you basing yeah. it on the slide well the slide is actually I've got two rival clubs in this book okay. the slide and the slippery slope which okay. is made up one but I'm at the point historically where the slide was raided and shut down spoiler alert that happens in the third book in this series which is a Romeo and Juliet story between the bartender of the one and the bartender of the other but um yeah scandalous <laughs> i know but um that just bringing the actual history again i don't think if i pitched this idea to an editor i'm not sure if they would have gone for it but there's so much material there and there's so much that can be done with it and then i already have a uh, a, a an idea for a spinoff of the spinoff that takes what gay life in new york was like even further because mm -hmm. the source material is just there I have a similar weird fixation about the 1930s right now. Like, yeah. 
because because everyone thinks about the, the Second World War and I get it, you know, the big area, but oh, the 30s was interesting. It was full of this stuff. And like, yeah, the London gay scene was amazing. And then people act like it didn't exist. I'm just like, it did, but you know you can't converse for hours about that <laughs> well and, and that's the thing that made me like gasp so loud you probably heard me gasp over in italy <laughs> when i discovered it that um because there was a deliberate effort on the part of mid 20th century historians to bury all of gay history and um they succeeded they succeeded to the point where a lot of my gay readers don't know mm what their own history is because it was so successful. And it's just like, I'm so glad that historians are actually correcting these errors now. But that's, I think, why I'm so passionate about writing this right now, because it's there, it happened. I, I remember a similar experience with, with my degree, actually. I, I did, um, the history of gender was one of my modules. And I remember there was a whole section in the library, like, queering history and I looked at it and I was like oh my god oh my god oh my god <laughs> people are actually doing it no it was amazing that's funny because the most interesting class I took in getting my history degrees was historiography which mm. is a study of how history has been recorded and the biases that historians have had throughout time fascinating fascinating stuff sounds it oh. <laughs> I want to come back to something that you said Annabelle you said that your writing voice was more Regency than contemporary. Yeah. Tell me what that means, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that idea. Well, I think it's because, from well, I, again, like we say more Regency than contemporary. We could just say not contemporary to be more exact, like, because I grew up and I read everything. I was an obsessive reader and my parents, you know, rather than sort of spend thousands on you know, whatever book was out there, I read a lot of like things like The Phoenix and the Carpet or Five Children in It or The Railway Children and like a lot of children's classics, which then sort of, I kept reading those and kept reading those and a lot of Roald Dahl as well, who was sort of a complicated man, definitely, but you know, and, but an interesting writer for children. And then I moved to Italy on my own and I just wanted to spend all my spare time reading and I had a Kindle and I just got all the free historical books there were. So I read a lot of 30s books, a lot of 40s books, a glut of Agatha Christie cat, like just amazing like, and I think my writing voice when I sort of get onto the page it just comes out as not quite of the day and I think maybe my speech might be the same but that's just I, I don't know how your writing voice is exactly developed but for me I think it's an accumulation of all of the books that I've read and all of all of the books that were important to me as well, which I think, for example, uh, Cider with Rosie by Laurie Lee. Like, if you guys have read that, like the writing style is really weird, but oh my God, it sticks in your brain, like massively. And it's very flowery and it's full of adverbs and like interesting metaphors and similes. So like, I'm not a clear sparse writer. I, I don't know. That's that's just how it's come out for me. I don't know about you guys. Like, I'd love to know how you guys think about your voice. I, 
I would have said, like, I definitely, like, until recently, I would have said I only had a historical voice. Like, and it's right. probably for the same reason. I hadn't really thought about why, but it has to be for what you're saying. Is that I, I was steeped in, um, in historical fiction growing up. And I was an English major and I, my, my concentration was like the long 18th century. And so like, yeah. there you go. Right. And I, and like, and the adverb situation and all of that, you know, <laughs> um, but like I, for my most recent, for my sixties books, I do rein it in. You know what I mean? Like I do, and it, but it's like a conscious thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, right. you can't, you're not gonna, I mean, like you can't do like florid prose in the sixties. That's yeah. like, it's ridiculous, you know? So, so like, and that is, um, that's, I would say that I'm probably aiming for a contemporary voice and I think it works, but I don't think I could have done it 10 years ago. Right. You know, like it's, it's taken much me. I, I think I had to get more comfortable with, with like what I'm capable of and more confident in what I'm capable of. And that it's not, and I don't have, and that like voice can be a fluid thing. Oh yeah. Well, that's, I've noticed that when I'm writing Regency books versus when I'm writing the Victorian era ones, they actually have a slightly different voice. And then as I've um, been writing the ones set in New York City, I'm actually noticing that my voice is changing slightly again because I've been, I spent an entire day looking up um, slang terms of New York City in the 1890s. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> and, and then trying to incorporate those, they just have a different rhythm to them. So it, it changes based on the location of where I'm writing. Weirdly, that, that connects into one of the, I think we've got a research question coming later, but one of the, one of the small but really annoying things for me with writing Regency is like, what slang terms were technically correct, but sound weird in a modern book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, so you're like, oh, well, he would say that, but I, I can't make him say that. That's <laughs> just not going to work. Or slang terms that were completely historically accurate for the time period, but people think are modern. Yes. And they will ding yes. them in there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always tempted to include like an author's note about that kind of thing, but it would literally be just like a list of synonyms for boner. I can't be your author's note. <laughs> no, I did. My author's note would just be like, just look it up, guys. Okay. I did a lot of research. I promise. <laughs> Professional here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I looked it up, so you could look it up too. <laughs> that's that's actually that's that was going to be my answer to one of the other questions uh, later on about things that are difficult about writing historicals is that it's um there's a there's a constant battle be, that goes on between being historically accurate and then writing things that readers assume are historically accurate. Yeah. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with some of the MF historical romance author friends that I have about how. The current MF historical romance Regency genre is actually Jane Austen and Georgia Hare fan fiction, not historically accurate. Yeah. So if you're not writing canon to the fan fiction world, readers will be upset. So it's a fine line to walk. And then you just, I, I've had, because my background is in MF historical romance, I've had readers that were like, yeah, but two men could never have had a romance back then because it's not historically accurate. I'm like, you're wrong, but it's a very fine line to walk to prove to yeah. you that you're wrong. This is my biggest peeve. And I end up getting like, I end up getting angry with like, because you, you shouldn't get angry about it. It's ignorance. It's not malice, you know, 99% of the time, but I'm still just like, 
it's such a lack of imagination to feel like, oh, well, these people would never have been happy. They never would have sought love and managed to live and enjoyed themselves. You're like, you know, they never would have formed lasting relationships or even just had a great time having sex with who they wanted. Never would have happened. It's like, you that's such small thinking, like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, just makes it's... me want to bring up all those actual historical people who very much got away with <laughs> my current favorite is General von Steuben from the American Revolution, who walked around American like Valley Forge with his teenage lovers that he ended up bequeathing his entire fortune to. The man was hysterical and everyone wanted to invite him to all the revolutionary parties. <laughs> and there were more than one. There were like three or four generals like in the Revolutionary <laughs> War that were like openly I mean, like they were about as out as you can get. Like, I mean, yeah. walking around with your boyfriends, plural, is like, you know. <laughs> well, and I live in the Philadelphia area and nearby to me is the town of King of Prussia, which is named after Frederick the Great, who was very, very openly gay. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it didn't it was... exist back then. No, <laughs> everyone suffered all the time. That was it. No joy. Because people are famously good at not having sex they're not supposed to have. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. I think it was you, Mary, who mentioned, of course, that, you know, history's changed so much. And for all of the marginalized communities, the history can be very difficult to find because it was kind of just put away, whether it's queer history or history for persons of color or indigenous people. It's just all like, mm -hmm. but there was something I heard and I, I, know, I wish I could remember who said it, but it was in like a historical panel or somewhere that it's like, even when oppressed, people find ways to be happy. Oh, yeah. People find their love, people find ways to be happy. And I, that's one of the things I love seeing. I know this history existed for sure, but I like seeing the ways that it comes through and the ways that you could see in the stories where people are appropriately careful where they need to be or you know, appropriately taking caution, but also finding the love. And it was it was Lawrence Brown affair. I mean, I've read I've read many of your books, Kat, ahead of that, but that you brought a little bit of class difference in that, but also, you know, mixed 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 race relationship to it. And it's like all of that could have happened and the way you structured it made me feel like it was also accurate to the way that it could have happened. All of this comes back to where my question actually sits. Is that finding that balance of historical accuracy and, you know, the story that people expect to read <laughs> the most challenging part of historical, or would you lay that kind of challenging part somewhere else? For me, that was really challenging at first because I expected a lot of resistance. Okay. Like I, I was like really, really conscious of the fact that I had an audience that what, that wasn't used to reading this. Right. And because again, this is like my first book came out in 2016. It really was a different landscape. And, and like, and so I was really like, I paid a lot of attention to like making it, to like making it plausible. And in one of my books, I did include an author's, an author's note, like, you know, proving that it was plausible or whatever. And since then I don't, okay. Like I, I write the story and if someone doesn't like the story, they can not like the story. Right. It's, because and that's part of that is just that I'm confident that like I have a reader base that is 
educated and aware. And like, I'm super fortunate about that. But part of it is also that I'm pissed off, right? Like it's, I don't want to have to justify it. Like I know this. And if I, I don't, I don't want to be in the position of being like, actually, we were always here constantly, every single book, every single interaction, right? Like that's, you guys know that's exhausting. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all. I know I, <laughs> what you said exactly, but I've gotten to the point now where I think that readership has changed a lot in the last mm-hmm five, 10 years, because I was really concerned about those exact same things at first and and got defensive about things. And now I'm just like, you know what? You're going to read it. You're going to read it. If you're not, you're not. And if you're going to believe it, that's great. If not, it's not my problem. Yep. But I've I've had like, because again, I come from this background of MF. Like when I had this woman who was in her sixties, email me to say, reading your books, I was really nervous about doing it at first because it's not what I usually read but I understand and it has helped improve my relationship with my gay grandson I was like oh yeah she's like I I understand him much better now and I'm like okay that's like a beautiful golden email to receive I think I printed it out yeah (laughs) yeah I, I'm not sure. I think, am I, am I the newest writing in this space? Something that I found interesting and also challenging as like a new author and writing in this sphere is that people, it, I mean, fortunately, the readership now is much more knowledgeable and much more informed. And it's not, it's like not expecting a certain type of narrative of queer suffering. It's that they're expecting like certain tropes that you need to hit and certain beats. And I was like, oh my God, like, this, like the fan base is incredible. And, you know, you, like you're never going to get it all, but it's still amazing to just see a readership group that's like, no, no, these are the things we want. And it's like, okay. The, that's um, the fine line that I'm walking is um, there, there are two buckets of readers. There's readers mm-hmm. who read historical romance and are willing to read a gay romance. And there are readers who read gay romance who are willing to take a chance on historical and they're Mm. very different and they have massively different expectations and trying to bridge those has been a challenge that's Mm. yeah no that is like I always say like that's been that's I've been wondering about that since the get-go because the readers for my the readers for my MF books tend to be the exact same readers for my MM books like and that's I hadn't expected that at all right like I like I, I was expecting I was expecting like traditional like Regency romance readers to go in for the MF books and it wasn't them at all. And, and when they, and like, and that's also, those are the books I've gotten the weird, like the weirder, the weirder elements of pushback about from, from readers. Like, you know, like usually people just keep their weird, bad opinions to themselves or reviews and like, that's great. More power to you. But like, those are the ones where the readers reach out, you know, like, and you get, and you get the email about how like, women didn't act like that. And you just want to be like, like, I don't know okay, delete. Like I'm not definitely not responding to you because like that's going to wind up on Reddit, but you know, yeah. like, but like, that's like, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I, like that is the biggest shock that I've had is that like when I write an MF book, those are the ones where people like also be like really weird, like really weird, like criticism of the, of the female main character, you know, like, yeah, like, and that's, I, that always makes me feel like just filthy about it, you know. There is there is a small, strange subset of the readership that I I'm not particularly comfortable with, like in in sort of that 
that kind of weird bad opinion that you were talking about. But I mean, again, like, you know, as a new author and as a new author writing queer historicals, like the pushback in general is weird, like to learn how to deal with. And also like half of the time, you know, it's correct. Like, you know, the ones that actually give you proper criticism of your book and you read it and you're like nope you are completely correct <laughs> thank you for buying it please love the imperfect thing I made <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, those are the emails I love those emails where it's like actually I totally agree you know like the yeah. dating mom is pretty bad here <laughs> <laughs> like oh pacing all over the place like you're completely correct well, I'm common we should be friends <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do you want to be my beta reader? It's <laughs> very much that kind of vibe. But have you guys noticed that readers have gotten, uh, shall we say, much more bold about reaching out when they dislike something? Because I've had a couple of doozies lately where they took, they went really? out of their way to find my email address to send me a long email. And one of them, the title of the email is FYI, why I will never read your books. From somebody who has never read my books, but took the time to find my email address and send me this big long thing about the fact that, wait for it, my cover models look too young. Therefore, she will never read my books. But it's it's just this, this, uh, well, this is probably not the forum for it, but have you guys noticed that readers have gotten very expressive? (laughs) Wow. I haven't had an expressive reader problem because again, I am just bad at existing in public. I don't even have a website <laughs> or mailing list at this point. I mean, I'm sure, you know, once I'm better tooled up, I, I will have this, but I mean, like my mental health is fragile on the best of days. I just, you know, I don't go on Goodreads like that invites polarizing, terrible reviews of your book. And I went on there for my first one and it wasn't, the one star reviews that really, really got me. It was the three star reviews that, yes. as I said, were correct. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you read that, you're like, oh boy, yep, yeah, okay, I guess that is a B plus book for you, and maybe that's <laughs> what it is. Like, but in terms of expressive readers, no, I avoid the forums where readers express themselves because, again, it's not my place. Like, if you if you want to lavishly hate on my book, have at it, but don't write me a, an email. What? <laughs> <laughs> I get one weird email a book is pretty much at this point it's one weird email a book I know it's going to happen and I almost like it's like it's such a rhythm by now that I know what exactly what I'm going to do about it like I will you know like I screenshot the whole thing I send it to my beta reader you know and then we laugh and laugh and laugh and, like, and then it's over you know what I mean because like I because I've gotten it off my chest and but at the, the at the beginning like my first book or two again 2016 weird times um I know there was a lot on Facebook and I wound up like with like a Pavlovian like panic whenever I logged into pa- to Facebook and that's why I'm not there anymore, you know, <laughs> but Avon actually was awesome about it. Like Avon, like, yeah. the Avon people went in and wherever bad, bad things were happening, like, you know, outright homophobic gross things were happening. Mm-hmm. They went and they were able to like delete things and shut it down. And like, that was, was I no way had the like, there was no way that I had the spoons to deal with that at all. I would just, I would have just no, would have been yeah. like, I retire, like we're out, you know, no more books. Like that's, that's really good. Like, yeah, I, that's, that's a really good response on that part, I think. Yeah. 
That's also why it's important to have your author friends so you can screenshot it and send them names like, you'll go to this person. What the hell is this? And and it's such the minority view. You know what I mean? Like like overwhelmingly, the only stuff I'm ever going to hear about my books is like super positive. And like, I'm like, and I'm so grateful about that. Mm. You know, so when somebody goes to like the, when someone takes the extra effort to make me sad, that's like, you know, that's, I think what what gets me right is that you went out of your way to make me sad. Like, who am I to you? You don't even know me, you know, like you could have just not done that for $0. You could have just, (laughs) at that point, I, I don't know. I am maybe too good at just looking at that and being like that that seems like a you problem. That seems like a whole load of you problems that you're trying to make my problem, but it really remains a you problem in the end. Like, what what can I do? The flip side of that is that's why they're really supportive super fan readers are just- Oh my God. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think readers understand how much like a positive comment on Twitter or a little message saying, I love you. Like it makes your day. Oh, totally. if anyone is ever end up being like, oh, but you know, they probably have loads of people. It's much less than you think, I think. (laughs) It's really, really good when people reach out. Well, that's why I have started putting them in my books. So again, when you get to the third book in the Slippery Slope series, Ricky, the bartender at the slide, is one of my fans. I'm making him one of the heroes of my books. As he he started out on Twitter, he started like just interacting with me and then he just got so I love Ricky. He lives in New York. I need to go up and visit him. But like I just flat out made him one of the heroes of this coming up book. So oh, he changed awesome. his profile name to the character because he's already been a secondary character in a book. You know, he changed his place of employment to the slides. So. <laughs> so amazing. I want to ask since we looked at a little bit of the challenging side of writing historicals. What do you each find the funnest part to be? And, and Kat, I, I, we'll, we'll come over to you to start that one. One thing I like especially about writing like, you know, 17 and 1800s historical fiction is that you can like lean into a, a kind of like, like vanity and silliness and archness that doesn't really feel the same as if you were to set it in the present day, right? You can have a character who spends three hours in front of his mirror, you know, and like really thinks about like the state of his nails and it, and it's like, I don't know if this, I don't know if this waistcoat is the right shade of blue. You know what I mean? Like, and like, and like, and that can, you can do that in a way that's like so silly and that, that I don't think it would have a very, you can do it in the present day, obviously, but it's going to have a very different effect. And I, I really like that. And there's a certain kind of just wry humor that I think you can get away with in in the historical voice, like Annabelle was saying, that I don't think, it just doesn't hit the same in, in a contemporary. Those are my favorites. I, I Sorry, at the tiny point, it, like, it is weird how fun it is writing about clothes or just cloth. Like, <laughs> like I, don't, I don't think people realize how much like you get a kick out of like describing someone's shirt or something like that. <laughs> like it's a real like, oh, everything's just so nice. Like <laughs> I have to rein it in so much. Like I, like I, like, you know what I mean? Like once you hit the half page mark, you're like, you know what? Like this might not be character development anymore. Like I think we're going to, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to tighten that up. <laughs> Stop with the lace cuffs, you know. 
I do well to me like the whole historical setting it's almost like world building for science fiction or fantasy because it's not a world that we live in so you get to paint the picture of the whole world that people are in I I love world building I think the parallel oh the parallel with um with science fiction and fantasy I think is like really apt and I think that that it's I think that that historical romance sort of scratches the same itch as as um because it's you know like you can write about you 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 have this setting that's like one step removed from actual reality. And so yeah, you can explore yeah, character yeah. and theme in a way that, you know, you can, you, you can do it with a little more freedom than you could in the present day. Cause you're not actually talking about the thing that matters here. Yeah. You're talking about it more abstractly. Yeah. No, the, the sort of, it sort of does stray close to fantasy and also like thinking about what you leave out and what you put in and it's sort of, it's interesting the things that we choose to leave out, you know, because everyone talks about like bad teeth and syphilis and stuff like that. You know, obviously, yes, it's not in the romance novel. <laughs> There's just fun parallels like, you know, sort of 18th century, 19th century books. The thing that always made me laugh is sort of a wild tangent. You never know someone's pregnant until they have the baby. <laughs> like, There's never any reference to like being with child, like the physical, like it's just not put in. So in your fantasy historical playground you're sort of putting in the posh curtains and the lovely dresses possibly leaving out how those dresses were made and the immense human suffering that was like a part of the textiles <laughs> industry that kind of stuff oh yeah historical's always been around in pop culture a little bit i mean certainly anytime there's a new you know jane austen miniseries courtesy of the bbc maybe a new movie <laughs> happens but I think trying to trace this back, at least in my in my little bit of research, you know, Downton Abbey seemed to really kick off a new yeah. wave of this that has certainly gotten even more with Bridgerton and the Gilded Age. What is it about historical, whether it's, you know, Regency where, where some of that set or moving forward to like the Gilded Age that we see, you know, in the in the late 19th century? why does this hit such a, a moment now and over the last couple of years? What do you think that is? I I actually sort of adding to that question is, is it historicals or is it historical posh people? Because it's, it's like, like yeah. it, it is fancy posh people and it must be connected in some way to current events because it always is, you know, there's a big, kickoff reaction in culture to something that's happening in the world but it exactly Kat, it's it's fancy posh people and i mean yeah downton abbey like yes there you know the servants have their storylines but everyone's talking about lady mary it's the yeah. kind of you know the, the dying aristocracy <laughs> well like that's you know you the dying part i think you just hit on it because yeah. it's a nostalgia for a time period that oh back when back in the golden age when things were pretty and clean yes. and wonderful and it, it, it wasn't actually like that but people want to believe that there was a time you know there was a dream that was rome and um it it's it's funny because so again from my mf background i'm actually by the end of this year i'm i'm leaving mf behind for a while and only doing mm because i've grown frustrated with a lot of people who want to recapture a history that never existed. Mm. And um, it, it has just become frustrating of like, okay, but you're, you're portraying something out of a sense of 
nostalgia and angst and wishing that we could return to a golden age, but it was never really like that, which then for me begs the question, so why is uh, queer historical becoming so popular when it doesn't hit that same, ah, there was a time when everything was fine and perfect and we didn't have to worry about the people of color and everybody yeah. was straight and it was, yeah. you know, it's, that's, to me, there's a, there's a whole other question in that question. Yes. Yes. I think, Feel free can we to talk tackle about... that other question too, because that's almost <laughs> no, more, <laughs> far more interesting than the one that I asked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think queer pop culture, I could be wrong, but queer pop culture in general is exploding. Like, you know, and I, <laughs> it does make me laugh when, you know, people with, as Kat said, weird, bad opinions are like, oh, well, it's everywhere now. It's, yes, almost like real life. almost like it was always like this yes it's it's almost (laughs) as if it has always been this way but I and uh, well I think the reason all three of us write in queer historicals is because I I just think it's amazing to like to discover joy historical joy (laughs) historical queer joy and love and how you you want to read everything about that like we've had all of these stories of pain and suffering and they absolutely have their place in the wider canon, but come on, like we need some happiness, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, some, a reminder that happiness existed alongside these terrible things. Like, I don't know for me. <laughs> yeah, I, think- I think really, I think that it's instructive to look at our flag mean staff alongside like Bridgerton and Gilded yeah. and all of yes. that. Okay. Because you have this, not only is it queer, not only is it a rom-com, but it's like explicitly like, like Brown and like, it's about, you know what I mean? Like you have like, you have like people of color, it's, it's by people of color, right? Like, you know, and it's, so you have this worldview that is notably absent from what we typical think of as a, typically think of as a period piece, you know? Um, and uh, like, yeah, like I, and it's not fancy, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, it's, also yeah. not, it's also not rooted in like reality, right? So there's something else happening there that's like, that I can't really, like that, that, that does set it apart from like the, like Bridgerton and Gilded Age, but like they aren't rooted in reality either. It's just a different kind of not being rooted in reality. You know, I, and I feel like, I feel like when people are talking about like, are we like, what is like, do people enjoy watching and like reading about like historical historical romance or whatever i i want people to look at our flag mean stuff you know like i think because I, I feel like yeah. that's a model for like going ahead right it's like yeah. you take like you start with like yeah i just anyway i actually i actually wasn't planning on bringing that conversation any conversation today <laughs> back to our flag means death but like it's all i've been talking about for like almost like for like a month and so sorry guys <laughs> We, we almost believe you. <laughs> no, you're, you're obviously passionate about it. And that's just gone on my TV. Oh, oh, no, you really have to. Like, really, really. Like, it's it's so whatever. I don't know what. I really have no idea what I paid to, for the HBO Max subscription. But it doesn't matter because it was worth it. And I would do it again. <laughs> and coming back to something that Annabelle said, you keep throwing out these little things that I just lock on to. What? I love that all of your stories deal with queer joy and love. Um, the world's on fire enough now. I don't need to read about 
you know, difficulties in the past. There's enough of those here. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things I love about gay romance in general is that I love seeing people like me, whether they're younger or older or whatever, all finding their HEA and that it's mm -hmm. not wrapped up, at least not in the books that I read, because I'll avoid those if there is, you know, any kind of like difficulty or overt homophobia or whatever that is. Like, mm -hmm. I don't really need that. I want that joy. Yeah. And it's, that we see it in the historical setting, I think, makes it all the better. Well, the fact well, that I, you said that that kind of, so I have several of my MF historical romance friends who've been like, I should write a gay historical romance because they're really popular right now. And I'm always like, before you do that, come talk to me because tell me the plot for your book because if yes. you write this book about, oh, woe is us, we can't be together, our love is forbidden, you're gonna mm. run into problems with readers. Yeah. yeah like I I mean I don't know sp speaking from my perspective like secrecy can be sexy but shame for me is not like I am just not interested like and and I obviously these things vanish in the historical record Mary Cat you, you know better than me but I I refuse to believe that there wasn't like a gay guy in 1815 who catches the eye of someone across a sort of crowded pub or in a field or after a festival and there's that little spark and he thinks oh well maybe maybe not we can sound this out there will be ways of working out like you know and then they chat and the spark but like I you know th that journey is just so lovely and so important and I mean I have a secondary character in my third book, The Seven of the Gentleman, who has a brief brush with the law, right? but it's, you know, I, I really tried, I mean, maybe I failed, but I really tried my best to make it very clear throughout that couple of scenes that he is not ashamed of who he is. Like hmm. people, people think he should be, people have told <laughs> him, you know, since, since forever that he should be ashamed, but he is absolutely not not like just and I as long as I as long as I've done that as long as I've had as long as I've got characters that are like you know what I, I like being who I am and loving who I love then you can kind of work out the rest I, I don't know what what's it like for you two oh exactly what you said like I would just co-sign that entire thing like I mean undoubtedly some people I mean like when you're told by society that you ought to be ashamed for who you are, right? Like, mm. obviously some people are going to internalize that, right? Yes. But yes. that doesn't need to be, that doesn't need to be what I write about, right? Like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm right, I want to write about stories that are, you know, uplifting and warm and optimistic for the mm -hmm. people who are reading them today. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, those are the stories that I'm going to choose. You know, and also like often that like that like being ashamed of yourself thing often is like that's not a permanent condition right like mm. you know like often like yeah. often like, you're there and you move and you move on so like you can write about people who have who like write who like at the who, at the moment the story is taking place like you know are are you know who, who don't feel that way who are who are proud of who they are right um and that can be the and that can be a big deal for them right yeah yeah absolutely so I want to dig into some of the books. And, and Kat, we're going to kick this off with you because you have been moving around those historical periods like we talked about. You've got the Cabots who are in the like, late 50s, early 60s. You've got Page and Summers that are in the middle 1940s. Now you've got The Perfect Crime of Marion Hayes, which is George in London. 
tell us a little bit about all this time hopping you've been doing and about the, the these books and these series that you've got that are kind of all over the place. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just like magpie brain, right? Like I see, like, you know, as soon as I had, like, honestly, as soon as I had the confidence to know that people would follow me out of the Regency, I ran for it. Like with my first book that was not Regency, I um, I self-published it with like very, like very little, I mean, there was no marketing. I was just like, here, I wrote a book, you know, and it, and, um, and it did well. And so, so like, that was a lesson, right? Where people, if people will follow me outside of the Regency, I'm going to do that. And, and so I thought, okay, like I can keep doing Regency with, with Avon and then I can self-publish other, like whatever random idea like crosses my mind. Right. And that actually has worked super well because like, I, I, I can, I don't get bored with a voice. I don't get bored with a setting. I don't get bored with like, with, with, with any of it. And then, um, last November for NaNoWriMo, like I just happened to be in a place where I had, I didn't have anything to do for November. Okay. And so I um, I just wrote a book that was set in 1959 in New York in a newspaper. Okay, and I knew it wasn't going to be one of my Cabot books, but I also knew that if Avon didn't want it, I could make it a Cabot book. Okay, okay. and so I just wrote the book. You know, like after being told, I don't know if this is a good idea by like several people whose job it is to tell me that it's not a good idea. Um, I wrote I think, it. I think we share it. an agent, Kat. I, I think that's, that's her. Like, she's very good at that. Like, she knows her stuff. <laughs> she was so polite, too. She was like, yeah. you really want to do it. And I was just like, I'll do what you ever tell me. And like, meanwhile, I'm like, I'm, just, I'm like, I'm, I'm chapter 25 of this book, you know? Um, and then I just, I sort of just like presented it to her as like, so here's this book I wrote. And she didn't say a thing. She just, you know, not even like she was great at it. Um, and and Avon wanted it okay so that's like and I was really surprised and really delighted because mm-hmm. I think that this I feel like it it's great for me but I think it's also good for like historical romance broadly oh yeah I think it's yeah. super fun for readers and writers and everybody when we're looking beyond Regency England you know yeah. I think that I think that like especially since Regency England has become synonymous for like a large part of the audience with like a certain level of like fancy white people. And I think that opening up settings also opens it up to different voices. And I think that like, like, especially with, there is like a like sad lack of queer historical romance written by people of color. And like, if like, I would, I, cause I was looking through, I I update my like recommendation list every couple of months. That way I'm not just like always recommending this. And there's like, there's a, there's, like that is a notably like sad column, like, you know, like, uh, like on that spreadsheet. And so So like, I want to know where is Alyssa Cole's Netflix series? (laughs) (laughs) Where is that? (laughs) Literally any of her series, actually. Like, like, (laughs) do I write her a creepy letter? Do I write Netflix (laughs) a creepy letter? Like, what do I need to do? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, I, I'm, I guess like the short answer, long answer, that was a long answer. Okay. So like my, like my, my coda to the long answer is just like, I get, I like, I am interested in a whole lot of things. And I, right now I feel like if I can be, if I'm interested in something, I am confident I can make it interesting to enough readers for it to be worthwhile as a book. And so that's what I'm doing. And like the trick is just to stay interested for long enough to write more than one book. Like how I have. It's not just like one random yeah. book. And then, you know, that way it's like a, at least a duology, you know? So, yeah. Isn't that just the story of how it goes? Can we stay interested long enough yeah. to finish the project? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, Mary, you've mentioned Slippery Slope a couple of times, and the first two books are already out, you know, as we sit here in June. Tell us a little bit about this series, more than you already have, and <laughs> what's coming up later in the series. Well, you know, again, I just, I, I, I wanted to go for something a little bit different that people might not have seen, which is setting a, a, a historical series in New York City. Because I've always been told, oh, it has to be set in England or else nobody's going to read it. And I'm like, oh, really? You've told me I can't do something? Watch me. <laughs> so and, and as I've done research, particularly this amazing book by George Chauncey, Gay New York, which is that that book has so much amazing information. I was just like, this, this needs to be brought into a series. And um, just exploring a different aspect of queer history that people might not know about. Not that they know much about it at all, anyhow. Um, and then, like I say, I, I and this is funny though, because I'm trying to, can I keep sustain my interest in this idea? Because the Brotherhood was 10 books and that actually got a little bit long for me. So there's like four books planned for the slippery slope, but then this idea hit me and I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it because it'll take place in the same place still in the Bowery in New York in the same time with the slippery slope in the background. But I had this idea for five guys who come from various different aspects of life in New York City who decide to put together a business making over gentlemen who wish to rise themselves up in the social scene of New York City. And one of them is into fashion and one of them is into culture and one of them is into home decorating. <laughs> and I thought, Take my money. <laughs> so after I write the four books of the Slippery Slope, it's going to be the Slippery Slope spinoff series about the Fantabulous Five. So, because like, really, seriously, that's how my brain works. The light bulb went off. Oh my gosh, Queer Eye in the 1890s. <laughs> That's, That's such so a funny. <laughs> but, but you know, so but it's still it all is based off of doing this research. Okay, so what was going on? It, this is because I have one scene in the second Slippery Slope book, A Touch of Class, where they're at the opera. I literally spent an entire day researching what operas did the Met Opera perform in the fall of, you know, 1890, and I learned some fascinating things. They did Carmen in Italian, not French. And I was, so I started reading about opera in the 1890s and, and what was going on with the museums and what was, because this is right before the list of the 400 went out from Mrs. Astor. Like it, it's just each of these different aspects. So what would somebody do to get on Mrs. Astor's list? And that's kind of, and I was watching a lot of Queer Eye at the time. And then the two things just like, it was like, you know, Adam's splitting. It was, but, but this is where the, this is, where the ideas come from and just taking them and running because it's like, oh, what if you did <laughs> this and that? So it, 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 the, the research rabbit holes are amazing. Oh I love it when that happens. Like, but also because you have a brain that doesn't stop, like you're writing, you're like, okay, so in the fields, there are corn, but how would that, no, it's wheat. How, how would that wheat be harvested? What were they using at this point? Did they have a machine? I should look this up. And you look it up and you're like, Wow, there was a lot of unrest connected to the introduction of these. Oh, there's probably a hero in that. I'll just have, I'll just spend three hours having a look. Like it's great. And this is why my writing and publishing schedule is actually packed almost of the way through 2023. And it's because there's just there's more ideas. Whenever anyone's like, "How do you come up with your story ideas?" I'm like, "They won't stop. 
Yeah, they just no, keep coming. That is not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> not having enough is not the problem. Yeah. Let's talk about Society of Beasts a little bit, Annabelle. Ooh, that last okay. book is, has come out with The Servant and the Gentleman. For those who haven't yeah. picked up the series, tell us a little bit about the series and what, what readers are finding in that last book. <laughs> okay, so The Society of Beasts, it's a series set in Regency England, and it focuses on sort of the lives and romantic journeys of the three founding members of the Society of Beasts, which is a, a fictional club for gay men. And the members enjoy a certain degree of protection from the law, and they also just get to spend time in the company of people that kind of understand where they're coming from, as it were, you know? And the third book, The Servant and the Gentleman, it it's sort of it's it's a very snobby but ultimately quite lovable gentleman called William Hartley, who's one of the founding members who's sort of whose kind of secret name is the Sable because he's very sort of slinky and sarcastic. <laughs> and it's a with a, a very overworked secretary who works at the society named Josiah Balfour. And it, I, I've, I've talked a lot about queer joy, but this is this series is about people dealing with trauma, basically. <laughs> like all every, everyone has is just working through their shit. Like, can I swear? Like, cause, cause that's you it. Certainly can. <laughs> brilliant. Cause they've got so much fucking stuff going on. And like William Hartley, thanks to the events in the previous two books is he realizes he's suffering from this very severe form of claustrophobia. Like he can't be in confined spaces and it's becoming a problem, you know, because people are starting to notice and this very, you know, and Josiah comes across him one day in the grip of this, you know, agony, basically. And he manages to calm Hartley down. And Hartley sort of, you know, oh, no, oh, God, right. He could actually be really helpful to me. But also I'm really bad at talking to people. And also he's a servant. And they start talking. And Josiah has his own problems because a rival gay club has just sort of started encroaching on the Society of Beasts space in London. Rival clubs, Mary, you see? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and, but this club is for working men. It's specifically not for gentlemen, not for aristocratic people. And so Josiah has to fight his, you know, growing attraction for Hartley with the very sort of painful realization that the society he's devoted his life and work to does have flaws. And those flaws, you know, may make it impossible for him to live with integrity doing the job that he does. Because, you know, I, I really like taking the idea that I had in my first book and thinking, there are lots of problems with that. <laughs> I, should, I should explore that. That's weird. Why did I only make a club for posh people? There's all these poor people that like weren't getting the help and protection that they needed. So there's that but also they just love the hell out of each other in the end like they really do need each other and there's lovely like really long descriptions of cake because I fell down a little rabbit hole researching like the dessert shops and ices and all like I got this almanac of all the restaurants in Regency London and what they served and it's such a useful book <laughs> isn't it it's amazing. <laughs> so it's mostly, you know, I wanted to to send in a, a 200 page book just talking about all the different types of ice cream that they ate. But I managed to stitch together a, 
a passionate, slightly mad love story around it. And I really like it. Like the book I wrote before, A Winter's Earl, you know how sometimes you realize stuff about books after you finish writing them? Like it was a really hard pandemic here in Italy, like mm. total, you were confined to your home. You couldn't exercise, you know, outdoors for the first period. You were just inside. And I was sort of tapping, tapping away, thinking, yeah, this is great. Now I'm processing. It's fine. I'm working. It's all good. And the entire book is about people being trapped in a place that they cannot escape from, like <laughs> isolated. And I think in this one, I definitely tried to make it a little bit lighter, a little bit sweeter, like just let them you know share a dinner and oh and it's a fake relationship as well because to infiltrate the rival club Hartley's like well it would make sense if we pose as a couple and Josiah's like yeah it's not like there are loads (laughs) of logistical problems with that sure let's go for it and you know they're talking about making up stories about how they met it was great it was so fun to write like I that's it. <laughs> well, see, to me, that sounds like a fantastic blending of all of the tropes that queer romance readers love and all the things that historical romance readers love. You, you nailed oh. it. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and, uh, can I put that? Just, you nailed it, Mary Farmer. <laughs> that, that would be great. <laughs> Just it's the perfect, it on it's my the perfect cover blurb. <laughs> yeah. It's also a double entendre, so. Yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, oh fantastic. I'm curious to know how you think you've evolved as a writer through the writing of whether it's like Annabelle, who's got the single single series, or for Mary and Cat, you know, you've got several series, several books, and how things have evolved. And and Cat, I think you've been in this the longest so far in historicals, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll start with you on that one. I think like it's um, to circle back to something I said a few minutes ago, it's like no, having the confidence to like believe that if if I'm interested in something, I can make it interesting, you know. And then it's and that that's the like from and that maybe that like maybe that's and that I don't have to hit the widest segment of the market. Like this is something I should probably write on a little piece of paper and put it on my bulletin board because sometimes I'll look at like what is selling the best, right? With the limited amount of data that we all have, yeah. right? You know, and I'll be like, oh my God, like this is so different from what I'm writing. Like, oh no, doomed, you know? And then I remember that actually I'm doing fine. And, uh, you know, if you if you do something well that a small part of the audience likes and you consistently do it or like semi-consistently do it, right? Mm-hmm. Then you then like people will keep coming back for more. That I don't need to aim for the widest part of the market. Like that I can just sort of with my enthusiasm sell the thing that's interesting to me. Like mm-hmm. and yeah. I really should write that down because like at least at least once a month I have like a small crisis about that and need to be like talked sense into. So yeah. When you write that down, send it to me because the exact same thing. I cannot tell you. I have two writer friends in particular, and they hear this from me about once every 10 days. Like, oh my gosh, everybody's doing this better than I am. I I don't know what I'm doing wrong. What can I do better? And they're like, Mary, you're doing really well. Just stop. (laughs) But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have that confidence in yourself. Especially when like what you're seeing, like... Like right now, like obviously contemporary rom-com is having like a huge moment, right? Yeah. And so when you're writing something that isn't that, you're like, 
oh God, like, am I on the wrong boat? Like, have I done something totally wrong? You know? And that can be like, really, that can like worm its way into your brain in like a really unhelpful way, because I'm not writing, I'm going to write contemporary rom-com. Like it's not going to happen. So even if I wring my hands about it all day long, I'm not going to get anywhere. Right. Or like me all the time. I was like, oh my gosh, that Kat Sebastian chick has another (laughs) book out and I'm sure it's (laughs) so much better than mine. And like, I got to check her rankings like every three, no, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine is I'm objectively worse than Kat Sebastian right now. But like, of course I am. She's she's been doing it for a decade. Like, why why would you be better? No, um, seriously speaking, the growing and altering as an author, for me, it's it's the combining like be, be becoming better at your craft with learning how the hell publishing works and trying to keep your confidence when faced with the brute fact that like you're doing fine but you're not doing great like your book could totally be turned down like you know you're you're not you're not at the top of the heap like and so you think well should I pivot should I do something completely different I I don't know should should I keep doing what if no one what if everyone hates it but like it it does worm into your brain I'm glad it still worms into your brain, legend of the genre, because it's, it's quite firmly rooted in my Like, wow. Thanks, well, Jeff, for putting this together. It's uh, like, again, so I've actually been publishing MF historical since 2009, but I've always been, I've always been indie, always, because mm. I love it. And I've always, I've turned down three contracts with publishers. Don't tell Ooh-hoo. them. Ooh-hoo. Um, Ooh-hoo. <laughs> but, um, I only started doing MM like seriously like two years ago, three years mm-hmm. ago. But um, and, and again, there's that whole well, I can I can do whatever I want, and nobody's going to turn this down, and nobody's going to say, well, thank you, we've had enough books from you. We yeah. wish you well in your future endeavors. But then, like you guys were talking about your agent saying maybe you shouldn't publish that. I have nobody telling me that. I'm like, you know those Calvin and Hobbes comics where Calvin is like running around naked, like just going crazy. <laughs> that's what I do. And sometimes I publish things and I'm like, is that the best idea? But, um, that, that you, then, yeah, you, I've learned how I, my big thing in the last year, especially is learning the MM queer LGBT, all those different, that readership, because there's different little buckets out there. And yeah. I've, and I've realized, ah, when I first started doing this, I was writing for the wrong people. If that mm. makes sense. It's like, ah, I think I understand a little bit more what I what I need to do, and because there's that balance between do I write do I write what I want to read or do I write for my audience? Yeah, and, if we if we could exchange emails, maybe that would be great because oh, like I there's that whole finding your audience thing because I don't think I found mine yet. Like some people pick it up and they love it, others really deeply do not, and I don't know where they are. <laughs> but it, it's difficult. It's well, and then when I started MM going I was first of all I was surprised like Kat was saying how many people followed me from my MF books into MF deeply surprised at how many and um but I feel like I started all over again Mm -hmm. and this fall when I go to completely MM it's because I have this Omegaverse series that I just cannot get this idea out of my mind (laughs) but I know full well I'm going to be starting at the very beginning again yeah and um but you know when you've been doing this for so long it's kind of refreshing to start at the very beginning because the way that publishing works these days, we, because it can happen so fast, particularly if you're an indie writer like me, mm. um, you get bored. And yeah. so you got to go try different things. And, yeah. you know, I need to 
I, but I love that. I love being able to try new things. That's why I wrote yeah, my yeah. Peter and the Wolves series, which mm. people are probably sick of hearing me talk about because it's so weird, but I love <laughs> it so much with my like five readers who are rabidly devoted to it. But, but that's the joy of writing, being able to explore that weird thing that you're really into. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh what I I really want to write a horror I really want to write like a 1930s horror story will there be a market for it probably not no absolutely (laughs) like Agatha Christie but make it really horror like oh oh (laughs) so of course Big Gay Fiction Fest is taking place in Pride Month and I'd love to know what pride means to each of you and also how you try to manifest that in your stories, especially since it might have meant something different or, you know, show up differently, you know, in the past. And Annabelle, I'll just come back to you to start that one off. Gosh, well, this is this is an interesting question. I, I don't know really where to start by explaining it. I'll, I'll just, you know, a lot of obsessively written notes. Um, <laughs> like, I, for, I, I went to an all-girls school. Okay, let's start with the personal. Like, I went to an all-girls school. All of my first crushes were on women. Like, and it wasn't an environment where you couldn't talk about it. I talked about it a lot with my friends, but it was generally understood that it did not go beyond the circle of friends. Like, you could have your crushes and you could talk about them with your best friends, but talking about it as part of the school community. No, gay people did not exist. We did not talk about it. There was no reference to it in any lessons. Like I don't recall it ever being talked about, you know, and while my family generally accepting, you know, at the same time, very much a nope, <laughs> like, not, not, not going to talk about that. And I, I don't really define myself as anything in terms of sexuality, but I think that who we choose to love and be attracted to and how we are attracted to and express that love for people, it's, it might be an unfashionable word. I do think that's sacred. I think it's a holy part of being human. And I think being able to exist as yourself and in a wider community that honors that, didn't, doesn't just accept it, but treats it as an essential and important part of who you are. I think that is what pride means to me, I guess. And going back to, to what I talked about before, like there are references to shame in my books, but there is none in terms of like how they, you know, how they now feel about themselves and how they talk about themselves with their friends. There's, as, as you said, Kat, there's not a lot of like, oh, woe is me. Well, was it Mary? One of you, but like the, the whole kind of, this is a terrible way to be. This is a terrible way to live. Like I, I, I don't have time for that in my own life and I don't Mm. have time for it in my books. So I think honoring the complexity of that is what pride means to me. I don't know. I love that. I, uh, <laughs> gave me goosebumps. Sorry. To hear that. So oh. I love that. that it Mary, is how, how about I feel. for you? I, you know, I thought about this from the moment I saw the question. And I, I guess it goes back to the reason why I started writing these books in the first place, which is I've, I've had, I don't want to say I've had a rough life, but there, I, I've had a lot of exclusion and I've had a lot of 
being ostracized from my peers in my life for reasons that have nothing to do with sexuality in general, just, mm. oh, the, the, oh, the community I grew up in. But it was always gay men who made me feel safe, who made me feel mm. accepted from my third grade teacher to who of course was not out then. And honestly, I'm not sure if he's out now um, mm. to my best friend in high school, to the fact that I did theater all through school. And like th this community has just always made me feel safe and appreciated and, and valued and visible. And I'm just like this dorky, cis straight white woman who i mean if anything i would be arrow because like i'm not doing that it's too hard um the whole relationship thing i write about it not doing it in real life um but i am with this word pride i am so proud of the people that i have known who have gone through so much and are still such amazing wonderful people who have been willing to reach out to me and um like a, a couple of years ago, Ruben, my best friend from high school, um, he and his husband, I was out to lunch with them. I'm like, Ruben, like, I, I really identify with the LGBTQ community, but am I, I'm, am I allowed to do that? And he goes, Mary, on behalf of the gay community, you're allowed to identify with us. So, <laughs> so if Ruben says so, but I just, I, I owe so much gratitude and so much of my soul to people who have made me feel accepted and this, everything that I do, everything that I write, it's just to give back. It's to give back what I was given and to pass it on. Mm. And Kat, coming over to you. Sure. So I'm 44, okay. Um, and what? I grew up. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, carry on. Really good for my ego. Um, so I am... Um, I grew up in like the nineties in the, with the most supportive family that you could possibly, my godfather is gay. Okay. Like there was never like, like, so any, my, my point is just that like queerness has always been like an extremely background part of my identity. Right. Like it's just not, it's never an issue. I never had a doubt in my mind that my parents would not care at all. Like what gender of anybody that I brought home. Um, it was just not a thing. And then I was, I lived in New York during my early twenties and like, and, and during a time when it looked like we as a community were like making progress, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, like we had gotten over like the absolute worst of AIDS. Like we were, gay marriage suddenly was on the table, right? Like this was like, and like, and like, I can't even tell you how like big a shock that was to me. Like, you know, like, and like that, like it really looked like we were going, like we were like, I know progress is like not linear, right? But it really was for a while, <laughs> you know? And now it's 2022 and I live in Florida and it is such an ugly time to be queer. Like it is like for, for kids mainly. Right. Like we're like, we're like for like, this is like just two days ago, there was like the, my horrible governor like put out an order saying that um, trans kids should be denied uh, like transition support. Okay. Um, and like, it's just like, Oh, it's all this like gratuitous cruelty. And so I am reminded of the fact that like, like it is like being like the, the first pride was a riot, right? Like this is like, mm -hmm. this is like anger is it's okay for like anger to be built into like the, the, that, that sense of like identity and community because I am like utterly furious. And like, I, like, like I said, this is like kind of new to me because like I've always been deeply, I'm privileged about in, in every way that, that like a queer woman can possibly mm -hmm. be. 
Yeah. And, and like, it's, and that kind of anger has fueled movements before this. And it's fueled that like incremental progress that I, that, that I saw when I was young. And like, and I really hope that it can, it can fight back against some of the stuff that's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, banned books. What the fuck is going on? I and, and did you see that list? Some of them that were on on that one from which it's county was so, it in Florida? Like, oh, it's always in Florida. Like, yeah, I mean, it's Texas too. But like, yes, there was a list of books in Florida, and like, it's always unclear whether they're actually banned or whether it's like. Yeah, but they, they don't. Challenged. Yeah, they don't need to be, do they? Because the word gets out and then libraries go, oh, well, we'd better remove them anyway just to avoid it. Nobody involved involved in schools is paid enough to, like, me fighting all day long. You know what I mean? Like, their job, right? And so, like, I honestly can't even blame teachers and librarians who are just like oh god just like we'll take it off the shelves whatever we'll do catcher in the right you know what I mean like or whatever it's it's and it's just it's it's just really it's really grim you know yeah but I feel like that's the importance of what we do because there's different ways to fight this and one of the you know there's the whole um you you fight it by fueling the the love in the other side and, and you get people to understand like this woman who said that reading my books helped her to understand her grandson yeah. you know the more we can get that message mm. of love out there the more that we can change hearts and minds as they say to yeah. for the future obviously i think all of our listeners and watchers today should be getting your books <laughs> but well, i'm curious so from much. each of you <laughs> You know, and not including the authors who are here here right now, who's somebody you would recommend for historical stories? And and Mary, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I'm lucky because uh, since it's June, I'm actually doing a multi-author project of a his, MM histor- a Regency series with uh, four other authors. Some of them are, are pretty big names that you've heard before in um, LGBTQ romance, like Ruby Moon. <gasps> and um, she's doing this project. And... Um, Elliot Grayson is also involved in this project and Hannah Morse is doing it. And then one of my friends from the MF world who is also an author of color who has written some queer romance, Victoria Vale, she's doing one of this book. So the four of us, or rather the five of us are doing this series, The Perdition Club, which is set around a gaming hell in the Regency. I tried, to, I tried to contact you guys months ago to see if you wanted to do the project with us, but I couldn't figure out how to get to you. Anyhow. No, why don't I exist? <laughs> but it's it's going to be an ongoing world, so we'll talk. Um, but but yeah, I've really gotten to know Ruby Moon really well. She's fantastic. Elliot is just hysterical. <laughs> so, and I'm also um, Jackie North is a friend of mine, and her this Jack and Oliver series, which is this retelling of Oliver Twist. Oh my gosh, I love it so much. So those are my recommendations. Fantastic, a whole universe to get to. <laughs> That's, so to. That's awesome. Yeah. Kat, how about for you? Sure. Um, I always, I always want to recommend Allie Theron. Okay, because I think that she's writing, yeah. she's writing in like a period that you don't see all the time, like the 1920s. She has like a really interesting magical world building, and like her, and it's super character driven in a way that like I like you really feel like you get to know the characters, which is for me that's always my catnap. Like you, like you feel like you know them, like you know them through and through. Um, and also Astra Glenn Gray, who never gets, who's like, okay. So like, <laughs> is is so she like the, the author's author? Like, do we all know? <laughs> like, 
I, I mean, Briarly is like, okay, so what happened was I was like in 2018, I was reading all of this Captain America fanfic and <laughs> it turns out Astrid Glenn Gray had written like my favorite Captain America fanfic. Okay. okay. And so I find her, and at this point I'm going to buy anything that she wrote. It doesn't even matter what it is. Right. But it turns out that it's a, this like um, World War II Beauty and the Beast retelling with a dragon. Okay. And like I, it's Briarly. Okay. And I, I, I mean, like, I would have read it, what, even if it was terrible, I would have read it, right? Okay, no, this book was, like, I read it in, like, two hours, and then immediately went, went back to the beginning and read it again, and then yelled about it on Twitter. Like, this book is perfect, and it's, um, it's like, as if, Be- it's, like, Belle's dad, basically, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. the dorky, dorky vicar or whatever, okay, and, um, and then after that, she goes and writes this, like, Cold War spy thing called Honey Pop, which is so totally different. And it is equally fantastic. I think I've and, heard of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's good. Um, and, like, yeah, so and those are two totally, like, Ali Theron and Astor Glenn Gray, like, I think are, like, pretty, di- like, pretty, like, writing in a pretty different mood. And yet I would recommend both of them wholeheartedly. Fantastic. And Annabelle, and, who's on your list? KJ Charles. How, how could I not? Like, I have a borderline social, like parasocial relationship with this. Like, this person does not know who I am, but she has influenced, like, in not just the books, although please pick all of them up right now. Like, literally stop what you're doing. Just go and go down, get all of them and then come back. But her, um, her blog post about how to write consent in historicals like that was just like amazing craft advice like you you just you sink into the world and you you don't want to come out like amazing just fantastic a fantastic choice all of you and you've added to my tbrs too between the universe and <laughs> and cat you you know talked about an author I, I i'm not familiar with so good stuff to be read there so as we wrap up, I would love to know what's coming up next for each of you. Barry, I know you talked a little bit about Omegaverse uh, coming in your future uh, beyond that universe that you talked about. Tell us a little bit more. Tease us, if you will. I, well, so, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person like, you know, I am never going to read Omegaverse Umpreg because that's just silly. So what do I do? I picked up the Forbidden Desire series by Piper Scott and Virginia Kelly. And that was just like, nope, game over. I read so much <laughs> Omegaverse. Like last summer and last fall, it's just like so much Omegaverse. And then this idea popped into my head for what if there was a emergency support alpha service to provide single Omegas in distress with heat support? when they needed it. So I have this uh, series bangers and mash, which is the name of the support service that like this it's so it's, it's very fluffy, lighthearted, funny Omega verse of this emergency support alpha service. And the idea, it would not leave me alone. So I'm like, yeah, I guess I have to write that. Is that going to be in a historical setting or does this bring you more? No, no, it's, it's going to be contemporary because I just feel like, I don't know why, but Omega verse, feels like it works for contemporary but then I kind of you know it could actually be historical too and then and then I had a a fellow author who has approached me he's like he has this idea he watched Bridgerton he's like I got this idea for an alternative world regency series what do you think and so there's been there's been some talk of this shared world series and alternative sort of you know where it's 
all sorts of the sexual spectrum is just all accepted. So, you know, that might happen. But okay, very cool. I always get excited when fellow authors are like, I've got an idea. What do you think? Like, Let's do it. Yeah. Which I shouldn't do because this is why I'm booked up through the end of 2023. We don't need free time or friends. It's <laughs> my full-time job, you know. Yeah, I'm an introvert. Yeah, what's coming up for you? So this month I have my second Highwaymen book coming out. That's the perfect crimes of Marion Hayes. And that is um, basically like two semi-unhinged bisexuals in, in like 1750s London, just making a mess of their personal lives and doing crime. And, um, and I'm excited about that. And then after that, I really don't know what comes like, like I will like a, a Cabot book will come out and a page in summers will come out, but in what order and in what months I have no idea. And that is like one of the, one of the advantages of self-publishing is that that can all be a problem for future cat, Yay. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Annabelle, now that this series is over, any, any ideas for what's coming next? Right. I've got two proposals that I really like. Like, I, I don't know if this is talking shop too much, but you, you get feedback from your publishers on how books are doing. Like, and you also get feedback from readers. And what I've got is like, yeah, they're good. People like them. Your plots are a bit weird. You want to do maybe less plot, like too much plot, too kitchen sinky. And that threw me into a fucking crisis. <laughs> like, <laughs> because... Like that's your crutch when you're starting out writing. You're like, I'll just put everything in. Things are always happening. That's, you know, that's fine. I don't need to improve. And now I'm like, yeah, no, that is a legitimate criticism. So my next proposals, they've got to be less plotty. Oh, things are happening. Like more character driven. Correct. So I've got a Regency, which is about a, a guy who jilted his bride at the altar because he couldn't go through with it it's horrible to her it's horrible to him living a lie he comes back to his estate and finds out that there is just no money the house is a huge money sink his younger sister's marriage prospects are just through the floor now thanks to their lack of money and his generally scandalous reputation and what does he decide to do he falls in love with the gardener <laughs> just Great. Wrong time. The gardener is an ex-Bow Street runner who's come off to sort of spend some time in the country because he has a daughter, a woman who he had a relationship with some time back, turned up with a baby. Now he's got to take care of this kid. He has no idea how to do it. He's going on like parenting manuals from the romantic poets, like <laughs> does not know how to be a dad really the wrong time for a relationship and who does he fall in love with of course this man with terrible life circumstances so i you know that nothing really needs to happen for that to be interesting i think like i i would you know i'm, I'm enjoying writing it the other one is based on a famous queer club in london called the cave of the golden calf i think it was yeah I think that, that is that is ringing some bells. Good. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I can't, it's 1920s, 1930s. And as you said, Mary, the queer scene was big, like in a big, massive public way that we, we don't know about. And so I've got a, 
a very sort of harassed club owner who's got debts and, you know, just because obviously he has to pay loads in protection money to the rackets running London at that time. He's got all this shit going on. And in walks this young Welsh singer who is a star, you know, magnetic star quality. He's going to be the next big thing. Probably shouldn't get involved in a relationship with this young man. And yet. So, (laughs) So these are my proposals. I really hope the publisher likes them. Like, if not, as a bit like Cat's Magpie Brain, like, I've got a million other things I want to write. I want to write a Christmas book. My mum loves Hallmark Christmas movies. Can I do a gay one? Probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, just the, the, the ideas stage is great. The, the evolution and reception stage, still great, but different. <laughs> Swimming sure. around in the happy bath of the ideas stage. And if you ever uh, want to self-publish any of those, if they turn them down, come to me. I've got all the information. Oh, God, please. I have so <laughs> many boring questions. <laughs> no, no. Oh. I, I, I've always wanted to be like a, like a career coach to like be like, okay, you, you want to get started? Oh, that would be great. I love that. I live for that kind of thing. So we'll talk. Oh, that's great. I'll come Thank to you. Oh, yeah. Again, oh, please do. It's so great. I'll bring the Best cast. decision I ever made. Yes. <laughs> Oh, Mary and Annabelle and Kat, this has been so amazing. I'm so happy you joined us for the Big Gay Fiction Fest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, Thank you so much. Too. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Don't forget, the show notes page also has links to everything that we talked about in this episode. And if you'd like to keep up to date with the show, as well as recent releases in our genre, check out the Rainbow Romance Reader Report, the weekly dispatch that delivers the latest news right into your inbox every Friday. Go to biggayfictionpodcast.com report for more info. Thanks again to Annabelle, Mary, and Kat for being part of Big Gay Fiction Fest. This was such an incredibly fun discussion, and I'm so glad they took the time to sit down and talk with us about this genre that Will and I really love oh so much. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up on Monday in episode 384, it's another Big Gay Fiction Fest episode, and we welcome J.R. Gray for an author spotlight. I had such a great conversation with Gray, especially hearing how he started at a young age to make up sci-fi stories and how that led into him being a published gay romance author. On behalf of Jeff and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kind of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Production assistance by Tyson Greenan. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. 